Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for being here. And thank you, Dr. Anderson, especially for being here, coming to Chi-Town. Yes, I we, love Chicago. We gave, you some, we gave you some decent weather for this time of year and some beautiful <laughs> falling leaves, so we did our part. <laughs> so glad you're here. Thank uh, you. The thank book, you. Uh, the, the, the timing of this book in this conversation is superb. Mm. We've got an election in a few days, and that's what this is all about. You, in this very impressive book, and it's, as you heard, it's for sale outside this door right after you've got to pick it up. You, you lay out a long and very disturbing history of voter supp suppression mm -hmm. and the amazing array of techniques and tactics, including poll closures, photo ID requirements, gerrymandering, it goes on and on and on. And this goes back to the late 1890s at least. Yes. So, a lot to talk about. A lot to cover. Why did you decide to do this book? Um, this book really emerged from the talks that I would give on my previous book tour dealing with the book called White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. And I would get to that chapter on Obama called How to Unelect a Black President. And in that chapter, I'm laying out many things that are happening during his term, but one of them is massive voter suppression, to go after the very groups who helped put Obama in the White House. Um, so that his ground game brought in 15 million new voters. African-American, overwhelmingly African-American, Latino, Asian-American, young and poor and how the voter techniques went right after those groups. And I would get this question, but I don't understand. Um, how hard is it to have an ID? Everybody's got an ID. And then I would begin to lay out how exactly voter ID works, how your library card will not get you into the polling station, how you'll have a place like Alabama that will systematically figure out how to shut down certain types of ID, like public housing ID is not government-issued photo ID, um, and, but your driver's license is, and then to shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties, so that now without a driver's license, you're supposed to go over 50 miles to get to the driver's license bureau, except you don't have a driver's license and there's no public. So when as I'm laying this thing out, folks are like, <clears throat> and I thought, oh, I got some work to do. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I got some work to do. And, and that's how this book emerged. And then um, with the, I, and I also knew that the midterms were coming. So the, the kind of misinformation that was out there that made voter suppression seem like it wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. And, and with this midterm coming and knowing that voter suppression was absolutely key in the 2016 election, I was like, there's a book to be done. That's how this came out. Absolutely. And I mean, you talk about people just not getting the, the you know, how these you know, things like IDs and how important that mm -hmm. can be and how, how easily that requirement can be ma mm -hmm. manipulated. You, well, another thing that I think people would w wonder about is we have a Voting Rights Act. We have, we have federal law. Oh, look, I don't, <laughs> the look says everything. That's what the Voting Rights Act is supposed to do, is protect us against these kinds of offenses. So why is that not the case? In a 5-4 decision in 2013, Shelby County v. Holder, via the wisdom of Chief Justice John Roberts, how am I doing so far? <laughs> um, he argued because what had happened in Shelby County is that they had redrawn districts 
in such a way that the lone black councilman in Calera City was now put in a district where over 70% had voted against Barack Obama. Um, so in that next election, there was no black councilman in Calera City. Mm -hmm. That case went all the way up to the Supreme Court because Alabama was supposed to ask under the Voting Rights Act for the Department of Justice to okay any changes that it made in its districting, in its laws. Shelby County was like, nah, we don't need to do that. And mm -hmm. Chief Justice John Roberts said, well, you know, the kind of racism that made the Voting Rights Act necessary, that kind of racism is no longer active in America anymore. We, we, just, we just don't have that kind of racism. We got, we got a black president. Right, right. You know, that's what he said. He's like, yeah, look at We got a black president. We got black elected officials. We got Latino elected officials. Yeah, yeah. Black voter turnout is high. So we just don't, you know, the, the, the need really isn't there. The racism that drove this thing just doesn't operate in American society anymore. Okay, I had to stop and take my, a breath because I was like, I don't know where John Roberts lives but give me the address. <laughs> um, and what he also did, and the other four justices, including Clarence Thomas, in this decision, was to ignore that in the 2006 reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, the Department of Justice had demonstrated that it had stopped over 700 proposed changes to the voting laws because they were racially discriminatory. So the fact that He's looking at a mountain of racially discriminatory changes that these states wanted to make that have been stopped solely because of the Voting Rights Act. But in his head, he can say that racism isn't there anymore. Um, so they gutted. Mm -hmm. In that 5-4 decision, they gutted the Voting Rights Act. And what that did is, I mean, it's, it's almost like a, a, a rap song, Who Let the Dogs Out? <laughs> Whew, these states... Um, Texas had already passed SB 14, mm -hmm. Senate Bill 14, which was its voter ID law, that it knew that it could not get through a Department of Justice preclearance because the law was racist, and he implemented it within two hours after the Shelby County v. Holder decision. Mm -hmm. Alabama had passed its law in 2011. The precursor to that was that the Republicans had taped themselves and had recorded themselves, and what they had said was, Republicans meaning who? The Republican legislature okay. in Alabama. Okay. And um, they had said, you know, we've got to figure out a way how to depress the black voter turnout. This was in a private, a private meeting or? Private uh -huh, meeting, uh -huh. and they're recording themselves mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they're trying to do something else on the other side, and they didn't realize the impl implications for this thing mm -hmm. until they realized the implications of what they were saying. Mm -hmm. And they said, because, you know, the thing is, is that you will have all of these illiterates and these aborigines getting on these HUD finance buses and going to the polls. Mm -hmm. So they knew that this voter ID law that they had just crafted mm, had a racially discriminatory intent mm -hmm. and would not get through a Department of Justice preclearance. Mm -hmm. After Shelby County v. Holder, Alabama implemented it. Mm. So the, the, the main impact of that decision is that it's allowed certain states, not every state in the union, but certain states that had that inclination or the leadership had that inclination to basically gut, to gut the voting rights laws in their, in, in, in their individual jurisdictions. Yes, and, so, and, and what that has done is, so states that were under preclearance and um, after preclearance, for instance, on terms of poll closures, so the Shelby County v. Holder decision is 2013. By the time we get to the 2016 election, those jurisdictions had already shut down 868 polling stations. Mm -hmm. Now, what that means is, is the, the research is really clear. For every tenth of a mile that a polling station is moved from the black community, African-American voter turnout goes down by 0.5%. And that has to deal with issues of access to transportation, your ability to get to that polling station. And so... Your economic status and... Economic and, and status, Affordability right. of that transportation. Exactly. So what was it, what was it, was there an average or typical distance that they were moving these polling stations to? So in, in Georgia, for instance, they tried to, to 
Um, and it's always under, because they're not blatant, because this is taking off from the Mississippi Plan of 1890. You're never blatant with it. You always have a very reasonable, rational reason. And so this was for fiscal reasons to be fiscally, yeah, to be fiscally responsible. We can't have all of these polling stations. They just, it just takes up too much money. So we're just going to be responsible and close some of these. Um, the one that they tried to pull in, there were many, um, in Georgia, for instance, in Sparta, Georgia. Um, oh, that's where, my, that's where my grandparents are from. Really? Okay. Sparta well. Okay. So, Black folks. Yes. Lots of them. Yes. <laughs> they shut down the poll. They did fiscal um, for, they did poll consolidation. That was the language. Poll consolidation. And so the one that they had for African Americans in Sparta was moved 17 miles away mm -hmm. from the black community. Mm -hmm. The one they did in Macon, they put in the sheriff's office. Mm. It was only from the kind of vigilance of the NAACP and the Legal Defense Fund and the ACLU that just started pounding on Georgia that, you know, it was like, oh, fine. Yeah. But 868, and I mean, so, and there are all these little mechanisms like those kinds of poll closures that used to have to come under um, the Department of Justice preclearance mm -hmm. that no longer have to happen. And it has impact. It has a distinct impact, just as these voter ID laws. Um, and, and I would say one of the, the things that gutting the Voting Rights Act has done is it has moved the United States of America back to the mid-1950s. Because what that means is that in 1957, because Little Rock had blown up and, um, and this is where nine African-American honor students were trying to integrate Central High. And the explosion in Little Rock, Arkansas was a foreign policy disaster for the United States. You cannot be the Jim Crow leader of the free world. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> one of these things is not like the other. And, and so the U.S. tried to do this, we're handling the unfinished business of democracy by passing the 1957 Civil Rights Act, which was to deal with the massive disfranchisement that was going on. But that required multiple litigation um, that would take years. Um, and then the case would get thrown out for some reason and then you'd have to start all over again. Mm -hmm. And the states would delay, 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 delay. This is where we are right now. This is why you see North Carolina continuing to go back through the courts. Texas continuing to go back through the courts. Alabama, Georgia, mm -hmm. North Carolina. I mean, we're back in the mid-1950s in so many ways. Now, one of the justifications you talk about um, fiscal responsibility, one of the other justifications that's often used uh, is voter fraud, that we, we have to have IDs, we have to, have, we have to purge the rolls, we have to... Uh, be very uh, responsible for how we monitor their elections because of voter fraud. Yes. You say voter fraud is a lie. It is a USDA grade A prime beef lie. <laughs> <laughs> Let me be clear what I mean by that. Um, it's almost like a Reichstag fire. It's, 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 it's something that has been truly made up in St. Louis, in the 2000 election, remember that 2000 mm -hmm. election where Florida couldn't count? Bush v. Gore. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, all of our attention was on Florida, but what had happened in Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, was that the St. Louis Board of Elections had illegally purged nearly 50,000 voters, knocked them off of the rolls, and didn't tell them. And so they went to go vote. And when they go to vote, their names aren't on the register. And so they're like, and, and the poll workers are trying to call down to the Board of Elections. And the phone lines are jammed. And so the poll workers are then sending the people down to the Board of Elections. You can imagine all of those folks cramming into that office. And the Board of Elections was, I believe the technical term, hot mess. <laughs> um, and so people are there for hours, all day, trying to get back on the rolls because they had been illegally removed. Mm -hmm. The Democrats sued because the polls are getting ready to close and people who are supposed to be able to vote can't vote. So the Democrats sued and the judge agreed, saying this isn't the people's fault. 
they were legally removed off of the rolls. Let's keep the polls open for three hours to give them a chance to vote. The Republicans came in right behind that and said no, and got another judge to shut down the polls by 7.45. What the Republicans argued was that this was a, an attempt by folks in St. Louis to commit massive voter fraud. That we had dogs on the rolls who were now voting. We had dead people on the rolls who were now voting. That they were now using the addresses from vacant lots to go vote over and over to steal this election. Now, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, God, I love local newspapers. <laughs> um, Bless you. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Did some deep dive investigative journalism work on this and found that all of those claims of massive rampant voter fraud were a lie. It didn't happen. The four cases that they found could not be stopped by voter ID. But that, once you tell a lie over and over and over, and so Kit Bond, it was Senator Kit Bond, he took this lie into Congress as Congress is crafting the Help America Vote Act, which was to deal with the mess in Florida. Mm -hmm. How do you bring back confidence in the American people in the, the quality of democracy and the quality of our elections that our machines can actually count? You know, little things like that. <laughs> and, and to the reality of what had happened in Florida, Kit Bond insisted upon including voter fraud and requiring voter ID as a way to stop voter fraud. So we have the reality of Florida mixed with the lie of voter fraud now being embedded in federal law and given standing. Mm -hmm. Justin Levitt, a law professor out of California, did a study from 2000 to 2014. He found that out of one billion votes cast in the United States, that's Carl Sagan, billion <laughs> votes, um, that there were 31 cases of voter impersonation fraud. So roughly two cases a year. That's not massive, mm -hmm. that's not rampant. But based on this massive rampant voter fraud, we get the rise of voter ID laws. Mm -hmm. But if you don't even believe a California law professor, believe the, the, the voter suppressors themselves, like Chris Kobach out of Kansas. When Chris Kobach is before a federal judge and he has to prove that his voter suppression laws are in fact valid, warranted, necessary because of massive rampant voter fraud, he couldn't point to any cases. He could not demonstrate to the judge this massive rampant voter fraud. He said we have all of these non-citizens on the rolls and they're trying to vote. He could not prove it. He couldn't come up with any examples at all of what he had been alleging. Yeah. There was one guy mm -hmm. who was in the process of becoming a naturalized citizen. And so he was confused and thought that he could vote in that election, but he hadn't received his citizenship papers fully yet. Mm -hmm. That was it. But he hadn't, he hadn't actually illegally voted. This was... Okay, so, so there are a lot of maybe mistakes or errors that aren't, are, that aren't intentional fraud. Yes. But they, not even, but you're saying that most of the folks that have been trying to justify fraud, don't, they can't even come up with they can't even come, the examples. Right, so Greg Abbott down mm -hmm. in Texas, you know, and as I said, Texas implemented its, its law two hours after Shelby County v. Holder. Mm -hmm. When they're wow. going before uh, Judge Ramos, um, in, in Texas dealing with the voter ID law. And he says, we have massive rampant voter fraud. And she says, okay, show me. He's like, it's massive. He's like, she's like, show me. No, it's rampant. Show me. Almost like she's from Missouri, right? <laughs> show me. And he had two cases mm -hmm. in all of Texas. And I'm like, is that rampant? <laughs> I, so even the people who are advocating for these voter suppression laws cannot demonstrate rampant voter fraud. Mm -hmm. It just isn't there, but it is the thing that is powerful in convincing the American people that democracy is in peril and that we have all of these people trying to steal these elections. And so re requiring something as innocuous as an ID 
isn't too much to ask. And so at this point, there was a, a, uh, a study done, I think in 2016, and 70% of Americans believe that voter fraud happened at least occasionally, and 50% believe that it happened on a regular basis. That is how powerful this lie has been in terms of, of sinking its tentacles into the American psyche about um, the danger that is happening in our democracy. Now you mentioned the 2000 election, um, but there's been a much more controversial election uh, much more recently, <laughs> and, and that was 2016. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you would make the case uh, that, that Trump, Donald Trump may not have been president if not for voter suppression. Donald Trump would not be president except for voter suppression. Explain that. Give, yeah. give, give us, the, make the case. Yeah, because that sounds like really, you know, almost like, what'd you talk about, Willis? <laughs> <laughs> but well, it was a very close election, no doubt. 77,000 votes. Decided by the Electoral College, mm -hmm. but where, did, where, does voter, where, does voter, where does voter suppression come into so that? So let's take Wisconsin, which was one of the states that he carried by a little over 20,000 votes. In Wisconsin, Governor Scott Walker and the Republican legislature had implemented a voter ID law. And then in implementing that voter ID law, that it wasn't any kind of ID, it was a government-issued photo ID in a very narrowed range, that inc included, for instance, your driver's license. Then Governor Walker said for fiscal reasons, he began to reduce the hours that the Department of Motor Vehicles um, were open in Milwaukee. Now, Milwaukee is where 70% of the state's black population lives. If you can take out Milwaukee, and they also did some chicanery up in Madison, mm -hmm. you can flip the state. Then when, after multiple lawsuits, and the, the, the and while I'm saying that, so let me back up. While reducing the hours in Milwaukee, they were expanding the hours in the suburbs and in the rural areas of Wisconsin to provide greater access for people to get the IDs that they needed in areas that were predominantly white and then predominantly Republican. But in Milwaukee, shutting them down, moving them, closing the hours. The, the judge came back and said, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the judge is issuing very strict orders about what they need to do in order to, to um, implement this law. They basically refused. Mm -hmm. They created confusion in the system about what kind of ID you needed to have to vote, when you needed to, you know, all of that. In the 2016 election, there were 60,000 fewer votes in Wisconsin in 2016 than there were in 2012. 60,000 fewer. 68% of that drop happened in Milwaukee. Then let's go to Florida. <laughs> You've got to, you know, you know, you got to come. You always got to come back to Florida, always right? Always coming to Florida, yeah. right? When I'm when I'm teaching my American history survey and we're we're doing the um, compromise of 1876, which ends Reconstruction, it was Florida. Florida couldn't figure out how to count its ballots, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And then we're 2000 election. Now let's do 2016. Florida has permanent felony disfranchisement which says that if you have a felony conviction, you have lost your voting rights. 6.1 or 6.2 million Americans cannot vote in America because of felony disfranchisement. Mm -hmm. 1.7 million of them are in Florida alone. 40% of adult black men in Florida cannot vote because of felony disfranchisement, mm -hmm. 40%. Over 20% of the adult black population in Florida cannot vote because of felony disfranchisement. 
Now, the way that permanent felony, and there are only like four states in the, in the nation that have permanent felony disfranchisement. The way that so it, that, which means that you, you, you could never, you cannot vote forever once you've com committed a felony? Well, it means that you don't automatically get your rights back once you have served your time and mm -hmm. done your parole, as they say, getting off paper. Mm -hmm. You don't get your right, it requires a process. That process means you have to wait somewhere between, after you've done everything, you then have to wait somewhere between seven to 14 years before you can petition the governor's commission. That commission, and remember I, I talked about 1.7 million in Florida, that commission meets four times a year. As there has been a review, an analysis, and they, they're only letting through a handful, as there's been an analysis of this, they have found that Republicans are twice as likely to receive their voting rights back mm -hmm. as Democrats. In, in the case of this felony In the uh, case of law, the permanent right. felony disfranchisement. Mm -hmm. So I started running the numbers. And just in terms of just Wisconsin and Florida. In Florida, 80% of those who are permanently disfranchised because of a felony conviction are Democrats, 80% of those. The statistics show that when those who had previously been incarcerated get their voting rights back, their voter turnout rate is about 20%. Mm -hmm. By running those numbers, uh, Hillary Clinton lost Florida by a little over 100,000 votes. By just running those numbers, she would have picked up over 200,000 mm -hmm. votes. If the percentage of folks with the felony convictions had been able to, typically would vote, the 20% had voted, yes. she would have got that number of votes. Yes. So, I mean, so you're looking mm -hmm. at just between Wisconsin and Florida alone, with their electoral college votes, he doesn't get to 270. This is what the power, and this is so, this isn't even counting what happened in Michigan, mm -hmm. where they didn't have working voting machines in Detroit. Mm -hmm. Somehow the machines worked in the other areas, but not mm -hmm. Detroit. Mm -hmm. and so th this is the kind, these are the kinds of voter suppression activities that mm -hmm. are happening, but we don't see them. Mm -hmm. We don't see them. And I wanted to ask you about that, because that relates to the theme of the, the festival. Yes. Um, this, the, the theme is about images and and uh, what we see, mm -hmm. technology, the impact that that has on, on yes. images, on, on the symbolism. Yeah. So how, how would you connect what you've learned about voter suppression to that concept? And I think about it. So when we think of voting rights, we think of Selma and that amazing cinematic explosion on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Remember that moment where you have the nonviolent protesters who are basically symbolically carrying Jimmy Lee Jackson's body mm -hmm. to George Wallace in Montgomery. And there's John Lewis, there's Hosea Williams, and there are all of the nonviolent protesters on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And lined up, you see the Alabama state troopers and you see Sheriff Jim Clark and his deputies on horseback with their bull whips wrapped in barbed wire. And you know that something's getting ready to jump and then boom, you see those marchers get hit. And you see the tear gas, you see the whips cracking, you see the horses just trampling over people. And, and that so horrified Americans. Um, ABC movie of the week was Judgment at Nuremberg. And ABC cut in to show the footage mm. of Bloody Sunday. But think about this, from 2014 to 2016, 16 million Americans have been removed from the voter rolls, purged. Well, we don't know this, because we haven't seen it. It's not that beautiful cinematic explosion mm -hmm. that tells us that something is burning, something is wrong, something has gone awry in the system. Instead, it is that quiet, methodical, bureaucratic slicing through that is 
whipping away, cutting away at the sinews of American democracy. But because we don't have the explosion, it's not graphic, it's not in front of us. We're standing there and we don't realize that the thing is caving in. Right. That's where we are. Um, because just from 2014 to 2016, 16 million. Most of those have come under the pre-clearance states that had originally been under the Department of Justice's uh, pre-clearance review. In Georgia, where I live, Lord. Well, we had to get to Georgia because- <laughs> You know we had to do Georgia. That's, that, that's a, that's a, everyone is looking at Georgia and that's particularly that gubernatorial race and there's been a lot of allegations about voter suppression. So yeah. I know you've been on the road a lot, but I'm sure you've been keeping up. Oh, absolutely. So, I, so what's the key issue that, that people, voters should be concerned about and we should be concerned about there? You know, we've got Brian Kemp, who is our Secretary of State who is running for governor, and he has not recused himself. So I, I have likened it to being in a game where you really wanna win, and you're also the ref. <laughs> so what we have seen, um, he has removed 53,000 people, 53, people who are registered to vote via a program called Exact Match. The way Exact Match works, and, and this has already gone through the courts, and the courts have said this is racially discriminatory. So the, the gerrymandered Georgia legislature then made it a law instead of a program just run out of the Secretary of State's office, mm. still racially discriminatory. What it does is it's, it looks at your voter registration card, and then it matches it up with whatever's in the um, Department of Motor Vehicles database, like, or in the Social Security office. So if you have, uh, you know, you put a hyphen in your name when you wrote up, but there's not a hyphen in your driver's license. You can it, be removed. You're kicked off. If there's a misspelling somewhere, if there's an accent on Renee that you wrote, but not an accent on your driver's license, you're kicked off. So, and how is that, you, and you so, would argue that's discriminatory against people of color. Yes, so, so many Hispanics have two last names. Sometimes you see the hyphen, sometimes you don't. African Americans have, sometimes have very interesting names. <laughs> we do. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And so if there is an IE in one spelling, but an EI in the next, instead of giving the person an opportunity to say, no, my name is really spelled EI, just kicked off. And so one of my, my colleagues, in fact, who teaches at Emory, mm -hmm. got one of those, um, your registration has been held up because there's been a discrepancy. But she doesn't know what the discrepancy is. They don't tell you. And so when Brian Kemp says, oh, there's no problem here, they can just come to the polls and just bring their ID to prove they are who they are. But if you don't know what the discrepancy is, you don't know whether you need to bring your birth certificate, whether you need to bring your marriage license, whether you need to bring your social security card, what is it that is the discrepancy that is therefore kicking my, my, my registration out and I'm in this electoral limbo? 70% of those in this latest round were African American out of 53,000, 70%. I don't even know where to begin with Brian Kemp. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it is just, and so we see poll closures. In Georgia, he has closed 214 polling stations. And most in, mostly in minority and poor okay. neighborhoods. Um, and he and there's there has has anybody legally challenged his his right and his role as Secretary of State to oversee the election that he's running in? Jimmy Carter did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, because Jimmy Carter's in Atlanta, and Jimmy Carter said, "Man, you need to step down. Just, just, just <laughs> come on, man. for the integrity of democracy, mm -hmm. step aside." But Kemp is like, "Uh, uh." I've, legally, I've, legally, there's nothing can be done about it. There could, there should have been, mm -hmm. so it, was... it, but it wasn't. 
That was a political failure then on, on the part of, on the but part this of the is, Democrats. But this is part of what we're also seeing in the America right now. When I talk about this, the, 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 the pillars being cut slowly but surely, this is it, is that these, 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 these norms that we thought were upholding democracy, the accountability that we thought was in the system, when we begin to silence the voices of American voters, we begin to skew and tilt the system. We know what this looks like. We know what the Jim Crow South looked like. In the Jim Crow South, coming out of the Mississippi Plan of 1890, which was the, the big disfranchisement piece for Jim Crow, by the time we got to 1940, only 3% of African-American adults were registered to vote in the South. So by the time the U.S. is getting ready to fight the Nazis, only 3% are registered to vote in the South. That kind of disfranchisement affects white voters too. This is one of the things that I think is also um, a myth. We think that this is just targeted at black folk or just targeted at Latinos. What happened in the South was that by, um, by the 1942 midterm election, the, the overall voter turnout rate in the poll tax and literacy te uh, test states was uh, 7%. Overall voter turnout was 7%. In the 1944 presidential election, and this is the big one, I mean, Roosevelt's going for his fourth term. I mean, really? <laughs> um, overall, nationwide, it's a 62% voter turnout rate. Wow. In the South, 14%. Wow. So begin to think about, one of the things that I do when I'm, I'm teaching, I was teaching at the University of Missouri and I've got a classroom of 300 students in the American History Survey. And usually there's about five seniors sitting up in that class that waited until the last minute to take this required course. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd say, okay, how many seniors do I have in here? And the five would slowly raise their hand. I said, great, you are the only ones I have to pay attention to. You are the only ones whose requirements and needs I have to be responsive to. So you don't want to take the exam? Don't take the exam. My freshmen are freaking out. <laughs> right? That's not fair! But this is what happens when you have such a narrowed band of a constituency that you only have to be responsive to. You see the system turn. You see it twist. You see laws being perpetrated that have nothing to do with the viability of the nation. So what happened then, when you only have to be responsive to less than 20% of your entire constituency, whereas folks in the Midwest and the North have these elections where they have to keep going out and is that seniority mm -hmm. just began in Congress. So this wasn't just a, a local event. In Congress, as these senators and as these uh, congressmen are gaining seniority because they're winning elections over and over, they're then taking over the key chairmanships of Foreign Relations Committee, House Appropriations Committee, Judiciary Committee. I mean, in, t in terms of these really big, powerful committees, you've got the South then setting federal law. That's what happens when we don't have a viable democracy. Well, we're going to take some questions in a few minutes, but I have one hopefully more hopeful question. Okay. And you write in the book about the resistance, and, mm -hmm. and, and there's been a lot of people fighting back very hard. Yes. Uh, um, what, maybe you could tell one story about that and, and, and the lessons learned from that, and what can we do going forward to resist and to fight this? Thank you, because so as I lay out in the book, there are these multiple methods. Voter ID laws, uh, voter roll purges, um, gerrymandering, poll closures, etc. And But I, I, it can look like a really dim, like, uh, like the, we're in Chicago, a blues book, right? <laughs> <laughs> but people fought back, and so I zero in in Alabama in the Doug Jones-Roy Moore battle. Mm. Because Alabama had deployed every method of voter suppression against its black population. And it looked like Roy was going to win. But, but so let me tell you one piece of this. In 1901, 
Alabama in its Jim Crow Constitution wrote in there that those who have been convicted of a crime of moral turpitude have lost their voting rights. Now, there is no crime on the book called Moral Turpitude. <laughs> <laughs> but if you try to vote, but you've been convicted of a crime that falls under this banner of moral turpitude, then you get hit with a felony. And so this was a massive disfranchising device. Because it was never defined. It was, you didn't know what the definition of You didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And so were you going to risk voting after you had gotten out of prison just to end up back in prison because you had tried to... It, so mm -hmm. by the time... And so the NAACP, the Legal Defense Fund, the ACLU, the League of Women Voters, they are pounding on Alabama for decades to define moral turpitude. Finally, in 2017... Alabama passes a law to define moral turpitude. Murder, rape, treason. Drug offenses, not moral turpitude. So the, the civil society, ACLU, NAACP, they turn to Secretary of State John Merrill and they say, great, now, would you tell all of the folks that you wrote those letters to that they had lost their voting rights, that now they actually have their voting rights back? And he said, no. <laughs> I don't think that's a good use of state resources. <laughs> By 2017, 8% of the adult population in Alabama was disfranchised because of moral turpitude. 15% of the black adult population because of moral turpitude. Civil society looked up and said, son, you don't know my name. <laughs> And the ACLU and uh, the Legal Society of Alabama, the Ordinary People Society, they jumped in there. First, they started doing a massive publicity campaign, both via social media and on the radio. And this deals with the demographic differences because, you know, I'm, I'm a Luddite, but I listen to the radio, you know, and, and saying, hey, you may think that you lost your voting rights. We know that letter you got but actually there's a new law, you might have your voting rights back. Come to our restoration clinic and let's find out. The restoration clinics were set up in black churches, the first one in Selma. And folks were pouring in there and they had a team of lawyers going through folks' records going, nope, not moral turpitude, not moral turpitude, not moral turpitude. Then they had a team of volunteers were going through going, okay, now this is what you need to do to get registered to vote. And they had worked hard, really hard, to get Alabama to agree that a government-issued photo ID could be your mugshot. That's the power of civil society. They also went into the jails because Alabama had a law saying, if you're in the jail, you can vote absentee as long as you haven't been convicted of a crime of moral turpitude. They went into the jails, figuring out folks and getting people absentee ballots. They also had caravans, because some folks aren't gonna step foot in the church. Caravans going into poor neighborhoods. And that process registered thousands upon thousands and thousands of folks. And you think it made a difference in that, in that race? It was a close race. Yeah. It was a close race. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Civil society, NAACP, mm -hmm. Black Pack, Woke Pack, mm -hmm. uh, Collective Pack, ACLU, League of Women Voters, Vote Riders, they all swooped in mm -hmm. and did that heavy lifting of democracy. John Merrill thought that the voter turnout rate would be 25%. Actually, statewide, it was 40. In the Black Belt counties, 45%. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. Yes. <laughs> that is the power. That is how, and, and, and beginning to elect folks mm -hmm. who don't believe in voter suppression, but actually believe in democracy. That's how we begin to turn this thing around. We have a couple of folks with mics. Uh, so if you hold your hand up, you're... If you, okay. So if you could keep your questions really tight so we can get sure. to as many people as possible. Could you talk a bit about provisional ballots? So two pieces disagree, they get a provisional ballot. Who decides if it's accepted or not? Okay, so the way, thank you. So provisional ballots, provisional ballots are used when there's some um, question about whether you're actually registered to vote. 
And so the way that the provisional ballot works is that you've got a limited amount of time as the voter to go back to the Board of Election with proof that you are who you are. Only one-third of provisional ballots are counted. Most of the provisional ballots are used in minority precincts. Um, and that is because in some places, you, you know, so voting is on a Tuesday. In some places, you have to have uh, bring, come back to the Board of Elections by that Friday. If you are working class, where you have to be at work at eight, when are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? And so this is one of the reasons why provisional ballots, so it looks mm -hmm. like it's an off-ramp. It looks mm -hmm. like it's a, but it requires then, boom, coming back with the kinds of documentation that um, the state requires in order for you to have your ballot counted. So many provisional ballots, the majority of provisional ballots are not counted. Next question? It's straight here in the back. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are several states, three states, Colorado, Oregon, and I believe Vermont, which have instituted 100% vote by mail for many years. Mm -hmm. Isn't it true that that will just move the problem a little bit in that those persons who are homeless, those persons who have living arrangements where it may be fluid or temporary, those persons who are in flooded areas will never get their ballot? Are we substituting one problem for another if other states institute that? You know, um, those, those states that have imp implemented a solely voting by mail, many of them have higher voter turnout rates. But yes, it, it, it is not a panacea. And that's one of the things that we have to be really clear about. Uh, many of these things aren't panaceas, but it's moving us closer to where we need to be. Um, because it begins to deal with the problem of poll closures. It begins to deal um, with the problems of you got to be there on a Tuesday for those states like Alabama that don't have early voting. Um, it, it, and those states, for instance, um, one of the pieces in the um, conclusion that I deal with are those states, for instance, like Oregon, instituted automatic voter registration so that you... Do, you the moment that you deal with the Department of Motor Vehicles in some fashion, you're automatically registered to vote. Mm -hmm. uh, so you don't have to go through all of those hoops. And Oregon implemented that because it wasn't satisfied that it was one of the uh, states that had the highest voter turnout rate in the nation. They wanted, they wanted more. They wanted more. Good for them. Um, and California added to that by saying, not only are we going to do automatic voter registration, but we're going to pre-register 16 and 17-year-olds so that when they turn 18, they're automatically registered to vote. I just saw a figure, and I'm going to get some of this wrong, but this year, California, 78 or 72 percent of all age-eligible adults in California are registered to vote. That is phenomenal. Yes. Yeah, in your recent, uh, most recent book, you uh, mentioned something about in the 2016 election that the Russian, uh, Russians uh, hacked and got involved in the black voter turnout. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about that, please? Yes. You read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and so we, we've heard Russia, Russia, Russia. One of the things that the Russians did, and we've got this pretty well documented, is that Russia knew where the fault lines were in American society and played us like a fiddle. Um, they would pretend to, online to be black activists who are concerned about the people, about the struggle, yeah. Right? And, and they were coming off hard in their, yeah, demand, da 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 And then after they had proven their bona fides after being there for a while and in, engaging with other black activists, like over police shootings and that sort of thing, then they would say, you know what? This system is rigged. It's corrupt. We need to show them our power and just stay home and not vote. Now, you begin to think about how, I, I know I have been, in 2016, I was in the black community. I 
live in the black community. Mm -hmm. And you know, and you would hear these kinds of rumblings, system is rigged, mm -hmm. Trump and Hillary are just the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. we need to just show them our power. Everyone's like, <laughs> and, and, you know, and trying to do a lot of education to undo that damage. But let me be really clear. The Russians would not have known where to hit unless we had already drawn a target around it. Um, the other thing that the Russians did, because let's be really clear, they don't care about us. The other things that the Russians did is that they started doing um, um, social media in these hardcore voter suppressor states, talking like in North Carolina, talking about this massive rampant voter fraud that was happening in this city, in that city, and when are the Republicans going to do something about it? So on one hand, they're telling black folks, stay home. On the other hand, they're telling major voter suppressors, like the folks in North Carolina where the Fourth Circuit said, you have targeted African-Americans with nearly surgical precision, to suppress even harder. Because what the Russians understood was how essential the black vote was to the Democratic turnout, to Hillary Clinton's success. And the last thing Putin wanted was to have Hillary Clinton in the White House because she was going to hand him his. <laughs> Next question. We have a question in the middle. Do I need to stand up? Yes. Um, we're talking about voter suppression, which is a symptom and a manifestation of the rampant white supremacy that is so entrenched in the history of this country. Those of us who are in classrooms with the root, so the people who are strategically and subtly and methodically crafting these policies are white men, mostly, correct? So we have little white boys in our classrooms right now who may or may not be the grandchildren of these folks. What are the things that we can be doing now? What are the conversations we can be having about this now to try and stamp it out before they even get to these positions of power? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So one of the things that we did, I, I've got to tell you, um, we, we, we created a young adult version of White Rage. Um, your, your previous book. The previous mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got a young adult version of One Person, No Vote coming out next year. Um, Great. To begin to lay this out to a much younger audience. Um, and it's fact-based because part of the problem in America is that when we talk about racial issues or we talk about race, and, we're talking in, in terms of either feelings or we're talking in terms of these one-off anecdotes. Mm -hmm. well, you know, well, my neighbor, da-da-da, and then that becomes the, 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 the whole norm for everybody. Um, but being able to talk from a space of fact allows us to then begin to engage in terms of the real history so you don't get diverted. Um, so, we say, for instance, and I'm gonna to move to white rage quickly. Um, we say, for instance, that the problem in the black community is that black men just don't care about their kids. How many have heard that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they just walk off, make all these babies, and just run away. Actually, no. The CDC, in a recent study, found that black men spend more quality time with their children regardless of the relationship with the mother than men of any other race or ethnicity in America. When you're speaking from a space of fact, not this one anecdote or these two anecdotes, but from a space of fact, then you're having a very different conversation about what's going on. What are the root causes of what we're seeing happening in these areas? What are we, what are we seeing in these schools? When we talk about, well, you know, black folks just don't care about schools. coming again, or, or that, well, you know, affirmative action just lets in all of these unqualified minorities into, oh, I don't know, Harvard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> coming in again from a space of fact. The greatest beneficiaries, beneficiaries of affirmative action in college admissions are males, overwhelmingly white males. And yeah, <laughs> she had that beautiful look on her face like, what? <laughs> yes. And that is because, and think about it, young women in high school really buckled down on their grades. 
They care about their grades. They care about extracurricular activities. They're studying for their exams. And so they have higher test scores, standardized test scores. They have higher GPAs, etc. If admissions officers just went by that, you'd have this massive imbalance in college admissions. 60, 65% women, 35% men. Mm -hmm. That kind of gendered imbalance, now that's based on merit as we understand it, right? But that gendered imbalance carries a whole range of ramifications for colleges and universities. They don't get as high rankings when they are majority women in US News and World Report. Young men don't want to go to a college that it has that kind of imbalance. Young women don't want to go to a college with that kind of imbalance. Applications begin to decline. All, but you've got this infrastructure set up, boom. And so what happens is that college admissions officers begin digging deep <laughs> in the pile to try to come up with some kind of gendered balance right. in that incoming class. But that's not the language we hear. Mm -hmm. That's not what we hear. We hear all of these unqualified minorities. So when, so this is how we began to have these conversations, is from talking about it with facts, not with anecdotes, not with suppositions, not with racial rants, but facts. This is how it works. That's how we begin to, to move this thing. So we just have time for one more question. Hi, Illinois has election day registration. Yes. What other types of policies could help more people who have the right to vote exercise that right? Illinois is, we're a winner, right? We're, we're, we're doing, doing, we're doing good doing stuff. You're doing pretty good, yeah. Thank you. Yes, yes, <laughs> I mean, Illinois, I, mean, I was just like, y'all bringing it. Yeah. Um, you know, have an election day as a holiday. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, like in Atlanta, there's a large black neighborhood here. Emory University is here. Emory is one of the largest employers in the state. What it takes to get from here and Atlanta's traffic. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we don't have the L. <laughs> you can't get here to there yeah. in time to vote. So having election day off where you're not having to make a choice between getting, you know, being paid and able to you know, keep a roof over your head and food on the table, or being able to choose the representatives who are going to be making the policies that govern your life. That's important. Um, I love same-day registration. I, I love automatic voter registration. I love the way that Illinois did it. Um, Illinois looked at what Oregon did and said, mm, we're gonna go you one better. It's not just those who have the Department of Motor Vehicles, but when you're hitting any of these kind of big state agencies, like the Disability Office, or, or like um, Human Services, you're automatically registered to vote. By broadening those categories, you're seeing, because registration is one of the major barriers. Um, Getting, we need a Voting Rights Act put back in place because there are some folks who will act a fool. <laughs> and that is my legal technical term. <laughs> um, it has only been the, 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 the oversight of an empowered progressive because there have been times when the DOJ has not been. Like now? <laughs> Perhaps. Well. You know, so this is like, you know, mm -hmm. mm. so, but we need a Voting Rights Act mm. again. Mm. Um, yeah, to me, those are the biggies. Election day, yeah. um, same day, automatic voter registration, Voting Rights Act, and I'm sure there are a couple of others that will, you know, and, 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 and we also need to be very aware that being able to get people to and from the polls, we've got to begin to start really thinking through that. That's where the mail-in ballots come in very handy mm -hmm. for so many, because just in terms of access to the polls, but you can have access to a mailbox. Um, right. but we, in Cook County, this, this, for this election, we're setting records in terms of the number of people who participated through mail-in ballots. Really? And it's growing every, every, every year, so it's... 
It's, it's a good thing. Yes, but don't do what they did in Maricopa County in Arizona. So they saw mail-in ballots increasing, so they reduced the number of polling stations and went to only one polling center, mm -hmm. and there was a five-hour wait. Now, this is Phoenix. Yeah. How you have one in Phoenix? Yeah. You know, so it also requires just having some basic mother with. <laughs> well, you tell my mother was Southern, right? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Anderson, thank you for your great mother oh, wit, for your you. facts, for the truth you bring thank us. You. Thank great you. conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And she will be out there signing books right after this. That was great. That was fabulous. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.